0: Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash... I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51, thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge.
1: Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. producer Trent here. Thank you, as always, at the beginning of each and every episode to our fine Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter of the Book Shambles podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and sign up there. Not only does your support on Patreon mean we can keep making anything, really, at this point in a pandemic, but you also get extended episodes of Book Shambles each and every week, an extra 20 minutes for you from this week's episode. Plus, you also get access to lots of exclusive behind-the-scenes recordings of Book Shambles episodes and special documentary series just for Patreon subscribers, including tips for existence and an uncanny hour. If you can't support us on Patreon, that is perfectly fine. You can go to... Apple Podcasts and Rate and Review 5 stars, that helps us out as well. Now, let's get to today's episode. Here is Robin and Josie and Nell Frizzell.
2: Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Today is going to be a thrilling episode because we get to speak to one of our friends, which is always a joy. Uh, She's not just a friend though, she's a journalist, she's an author, she's a broadcaster, She's a many-decorated swimmer and runner. (laughs) She's a busy working mother of one and buckets of fun. It's (laughs) Nell Frizzell. Hello!
3: I'm even more of a bucket now I'm the mother of one. Sacra, crass? Oh,
2: Sorry. My God. She's absolutely turned the air blue within a second. So yeah,
0: also well, per- we were going to put this podcast out later. You're not going to be able to hear this podcast before 9pm. <laughs> We've got a special thing on that. Yeah, because I told you, I said yeah. she was the last yeah, person Phil. I worked with uh, Watershed in the real world. And, uh, and I found her overly racy for what we were aiming for was a daytime format.
2: It's an... Sorry. Well, let's start as we mean to go on.
0: <laughs> How are you? I'm going to sit this one out, by the way, just so you know, because I know that, you know, you basically you became parents at the same time. You're mm-hmm. very competitive in a wild swimming world. I'm just, <laughs> no. just going to watch this unfold. It's we, yeah, not competition. We're going to
3: strip down to neoprene and fight it out over Zoom.
0: i <laughs> <laughs> see again, as
2: if we'd be wearing neoprene. As if. We're not as wimps. If. We'd be got- wearing the thinnest of lycra.
3: I got my dry bag out, wait, oh, yeah. and uh, did a little downriver swim the other day. It was so nice. Oh, it was, wow. like to cover some distance with the current, of course, because I'm, I'm not Hercules, but it was really good. Oh, hang on, I forgot to shut the study door.
0: So now, while she's gone, tell me all about this book, right?
3: Well, the book is very orange and it's called The Panic Years and it's a memoir of my life. From 28, when I was single, had been made redundant, had to move back in with my mother and sort of, and my bike broke. So at that point at 28, I felt like I'd sort of almost reverted back to a a version of Nell that I hadn't seen since I was about 22. And everyone around me seemed to be undergoing sort of really fundamental, quite transformative life changes. So they were moving country or getting married some of people were starting to get pregnant they were changing career big things that were happening and I felt like I was having a kind of private crisis and I really wanted to write about it but I was too in the midst of it to really write about it because it would have just sort of been 80,000 words for me going what the hell is going on but then when <clears throat> I was 33 and I had a baby I suddenly looked back and could see this whole arc uh the sort of story those five years suddenly fell into something much more like the shape of a narrative. And I realized that what had kind of preceded and caused this sort of explosion of my life at 28 where I thought I'd lost everything that I considered my security and happiness was basically a reckoning with my fertility And I think that's a really common thing that we are sort of expected to deal with privately and sort of uncomplainingly and whether you and it happens whether you want to have children or don't want to have children or haven't decided. And so I sort of looked back and someone said this thing about how when you're at the bottom of a very tall building, you can't see the building you see the sort of things around you and maybe the first story windows but as you walk away it rises up behind you like a rocket and you realize it was towering over everything you were doing and so when I suddenly had a child I realized that the big decision do I have a baby and if so when how with whom where that had been sort of an engine that had been pushing along all of these other decisions that at the time had felt completely impossible to untangle. Like I I say, if someone said to me, oh, I've got a room coming up in my flat, do you want to move in? I'd be like, honestly, I don't know because I don't know what I'm doing with my life in terms of my job, my family, my relationship, everything. Like everything feels that if I untie this knot, the whole web of my life is gonna unravel and I'm sort of left with nothing. And I think I'm very lucky in so many ways. But I'm very lucky now that I have a kind of perspective on that. So I wrote just I, I wanted to write a kind of funny memoir of that time in order to open up all of the things that make that such a complicated time for people, particularly cisgendered women, but for all sorts of people, because there were sort of systematic problems in terms of, the workplace and healthcare, and the way we talk and think about relationships the way we're conditioned to consider our bodies that make this not just my problem I think it's a pretty universal problem mm-hmm. and a very wise woman called Josie Long wrote that she didn't know a single woman who hadn't undergone this phenomenon that I was writing about and that was very very nice.
2: Yeah, it's true it's very true I I, I kind of think
3: think it is true that you look around at some point maybe like a 30th birthday party or a wedding or something after work drinks and think what the bloody hell is happening everyone seems to be splintering off into these really disparate quite like quite complicated groups and we're all sort of defining ourselves by what we have and what we don't have and you know it, it felt panicky
0: can I ask, and this is to Josie as well, which is uh, in in, and I, I realise that your world is kind of half and half in terms of being a, a journalist. I think as, as you were it, it, or are, is but uh, still that kind of world of arts, Josie mm. is. Most of the people we know and hang around with have not gone into the world that you know that bit so you know you and i don't drive in fact i, I know almost no one who drives so no, whenever I i've drive. said let's all go on a tour we have to go to leicester and get picked up by grace petrie right which is <laughs> miles away right and and we have all you know i i my my again children very late really by the standards of a lot of, and so i think it's an interesting thing that in the in the world in our specific world we know lots of people who have never done the the order of things in yeah. terms of yeah Marriage, children, I'm settling down, everything's good. That erratic nature. And I wonder what that says about the whole world of of creativity and and what it seems to have a much bigger psychological story to tell than just that.
2: I mean, I would say there's something about uh, that feeling of you need somewhat to be weaving a story about yourself that feels coherent to you. In order to be a creative person, you need or to in order to be you know a stand up in particular, but I would imagine as well like a a writer who writes about their life too you you sort of need to be thinking about yourself. I can't remember where it's from, but it's this you know the main character thing in your in your story, and so I think for me, I was very very frightened to introduce a new character who I knew would entirely supersede me. Um, I think I was also frightened because of, and I'm sure Nell has felt the same way, because of sexism and looking around at lots of comedians who have their own shows who are also women, very few of them at this at that stage in their lives actually have children so it's almost been something that I always felt like you have to achieve more before you have a child oh god yeah and And then things didn't really go my way anyway so I was just like I have a child
3: (laughs) but you know but also the the average it's not just us in in our sort of lucky creative jobs the average age of a woman to be a parent an average age of a female parent in this country now is 30.6 years old and for a man is 33.2 i think (sighs) so it's i know there's a story in those three years i tell you but i am everyone this is getting put off and put off and i think partly one of the things i wanted to kind of interrogate in the book was this idea that you have to get your life out of the way before you have children which i really resent and i I think it's really harmful for everyone because actually that juts up against that that sort of abstract philosophy juts up against the biological reality that for people with wombs you have a finite number of eggs and that means you have a finite amount of time and so waiting for people to quote unquote feel ready to have children Will necessarily exclude a lot of people from having children who might want to do it, and I think that's really unfair. Also, what you were saying about the creative about women doing stand-up shows—I've got this book, The *The Khan* by Simon Mir, and she said this brilliant thing. I interviewed her for my podcast and in the book. She said, "Yeah, like motherhood is considered lame, and it's ableist language, but she's right. Like people think, like I have read and watched a lot of." stuff about people taking up running or, you know, their, the year they spent going, you know, living in Germany or whatever, but the enormous, transformative, incredibly creative, physical, emotional, psychological sort of... Um, undertaking of motherhood is considered a bit niche and a bit boring or a bit drab and a bit domestic and I think that like it's 2020 come on like we don't have to think that people should hide themselves behind an apron and sit indoors for three years like this is insane
2: yes I completely agree about that and I think it feeds it comes from a sexist place as well. It comes from like uh, I was mentioning in this in my last stand up show that since I started stand up as a seventeen year old, I'd have people basically running up to me and saying, "Women only talk about gross women's things," Ugh. and it meant that when it came to talking about this experience, which you know to me felt like my my experience as a woman, not that it is you know it's not an experience that only cisgender women have. We know that, but in my experience as a woman. And I wanted to talk about it and it, it made me frightened to do so for those that exact same reason, because it's been pushed out of what people are told is interesting and you've written about this and talked about this so well in the past about how we've been told that our own experiences are not interesting and that if we try and talk about them it's gross and we've even come up with
3: pejorative labels like we call people mummy bloggers or mummy writers imagine if you were called like a mummy comedian which is basically a way of saying the life experience of the majority of half the population is basically a bit shit. And it's a bit amateur and it's a bit boring and it's a bit smug and it's a bit indulgent. Like that's where the I like, I know a lot of daddy politicians. Oh, another daddy writer, another daddy blog, another well, daddy podcaster. Honest,
2: you, you don't know many daddy politicians. Because they politicians. don't talk about it. <laughs> because they don't, you know, Jake and yeah. fucking Reece Mogg. Yeah. But also yeah. I uh, there was something in, in what you said too, which is that, uh, like uh, we we've talked about this definitely you have talked about this about how so much of what mainstream culture is is still marketed to very niche mm. spurious in themselves demographics and yeah. they just don't and and the other thing that i think is important is it says so much about how our society wants us to ignore things like birth and death mm. but it also wants us to ignore child rearing anything that isn't kind of to the ends of capital anything that's like the real meat and potatoes of life absolutely and the older i get
3: the more radical i get about this that the act of birth and child rearing is an innately anti-capitalist act and this that's is what why people bang with it
2: ah oh, yeah is, yeah of course because you can do. can't monetize it you can't
3: monetize i mean they try they you hand can you a pack on a board and force it but like basically there is no profit to be gained from me loving my child and loving my partner. And like the, the opening of my pelvis and the ripping through of a baby did not make anyone money. And therefore I'm expected to kind of not talk about it. Whereas someone, you know, my age around the corner who's bought a pair of trainers is like lauded and celebrated for his blog about trainers and his trainer collection. And he's like hilarious witty banter about his trainers because that has moved money around in the system. And I've worked in enough offices to know that talking about the films you've watched, the clothes you've bought, the kitchens that you're renovating is more socially acceptable than the actual people that you have
2: created with your body and are making in the world. And also people uh, don't, there's a, I think there's a culture in this, in, in England in particular, but I'm, I'm just saying that because I now, I'm like, Yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> But there, I think there's a culture in the United Kingdom of, how dare that person be enjoying their life? Life is not yeah. for enjoying. How dare you be creating things for no money and enjoying that? Yeah. How dare you? This is yeah. not what life is. And you're not living in the real world, you know? And there's a really,
3: you know, a, a thing that I really wanted to explore in the book is that if you choose not to have children or for reasons outside of your control, you don't have children, you are expected to somehow shore up that your identity in another way to kind of prove yourself, to fill that void, which is incredibly offensive like people people like yeah she's not had a baby but she's like opened a cafe got a very good job or has a love partner or she's traveling you know all of that stuff which I just yeah. think that is vile you're sort of asked you know my child free friends are asked what else they're doing as if you need to be doing anything else it's wild but also that also there is a real sort of taboo about either side of that basic binary of do you, are you a parent or you're not a parent is the expression of regret or doubt after the effect, after the effect, you know, if you choose not to have children and one day from, you know, half an hour, you feel really sad and regret that you don't have children. You're, you're not expected to talk about that because it somehow undermines the decision you've made. And if I, as a parent for half an hour, regret or doubt, whether having children has been good for my life, I'm not meant to talk about that because everyone says, well, you chose this. This is what you wanted. You know, you wanted a baby. And, you know, even my own lovely mother will say, well, darling, this is what you want. I'm like, well, this
2: isn't, this bit isn't what I wanted. No. <laughs> and also, again, it's it's this idea that the stages of life are kept discreet and hidden from one another. Yes. And especially as a woman, when you arrive at them, suddenly you're like, it's like that um, Holly McNeish book of Nobody Told Me. Yeah, and, and I know it's the same with menopause. You know, if there's one thing even more, more culturally taboo to make art about than having children it's menopause Menopause. like how dare older women talk about their bodies but um you know so exactly so nobody says uh, look this thing is so game-changing that it will continue it it will take you so long to adjust and there will be times when you feel totally almost swindled because you didn't know and you couldn't have known mm-hmm. that your life would permanently change because how can you possibly in advance know the future state that is a Rubicon yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and like it, it, rather than sort of give any help or understanding to that it's like no that's later don't worry about that yet you do that then you do that then you do that and each of them should be full of ghastly surprises
3: and us beating you up for it (laughs) so Daisy Buchanan said this thing on my podcast that I really liked which was she has chosen not to have children and at the moment that feels like a decision she's comfortable with and at ease with but even if she gets to 50 and suddenly goes oh my god no everyone should have children this was a terrible mistake she's like I'm happy to be that collateral like, even if I'm the one person that realized, like, who decides that I was wrong, I still will spend the next 20 years fighting and arguing that I was right to do it. Even if I change my mind, I still have the right to say at the moment, this is the right thing to do. And I thought that was really lovely. The idea that we can get to 50 and, you know, we can admit that things are trickier and more complicated and maybe they've had moments of regret and
2: doubt. Why? Like, Absolutely. Well, Also, you have one life. You make decisions in the moment you attempt things you think you're doing the right thing you look back you feel that you were an idiot <laughs> there's no other way around it it's not possible mm. to pursue the right course always and to go through life without having regrets like I, I was ascending my show if you, if you get through your half of your life and you haven't got any regrets you're not doing it properly yeah yeah like you're you, not doing anything yeah you're not really uh, and I think as well there is something that we're talking about about this idea that you have to be so fixed and so sure in decisions and positions that you hold yeah we
3: really value consistency even though we know that the one thing that the human brain and body is
2: not really capable of is consistency and I tell you (laughs) something I think it feeds into I saw a great tweet I love I love starting a sentence with this (laughs) But I saw a great tweet yesterday, which was one of the biggest victories that conservatism has had in the culture wars, spurious as they are, is to convince us that hypocrisy is the worst possible sin. Yes, yes, the yes, yes. absolute worst possible sin. When actually, everyone is a hypocrite. Yeah. Uh, Nobody is entirely morally consistent and nobody's entirely consistent in what they think and believe because if they were, they wouldn't be changing and evolving as a person. I think this is something
3: that my industry is incredibly guilty of, that in, in the media and, you know, sort of publishing generally, <clears throat> we will very happily criticise hypocrites and completely ignore villains. Yeah. Like, yeah. we will really go in on people who change their mind and people who have consistently held revolting views. We're like... Well, that's just who they
0: are. (laughs) But isn't this also that? Because this is, I was thinking about this the other day over various things, looking back over the 1980s, and because of It's a Sin, I was reading some of the old stuff um, on, you know, the writing of Clause 28 and thinking about Meghan Markle at the moment and things like that, which is the problem you have in this situation about hypocrites is. The shameless cannot be shamed. You know, this is something mm. that's true of Donald Trump. I think it's something that's true of Kelvin McKenzie. I think it's something that's true of an enormous amount of you know the thing that I know best, I suppose, which is that it, in terms of what I read British press, there is an utter yeah, you know, and, and their hypocrisy doesn't. Matter. And that's I think one of the bits where people feel so impotent is yeah. because you know every day on Twitter there's people going, but can't you see what you've said there? And then actually Prince Andrew and this and this and you go, this is of no concern. Mm. because this is predominantly in the biggest selling newspapers. It is an industry which has no shame. You know, when I see what things that, you know, Jean Rook, who was known as the first lady of of Fleet Street, I was reading again about, you know, Jamois, the stuff she wrote about Stephen Gately and all of those. It doesn't matter. You know what? You literally, I mean, it does to us, but... The utter well, shamelessness makes hypocrisy, and that's why it's so useful. Because you, Josie, or I, or I, I don't know you so well. No, you may well be someone who's very comfortable with your hypocrisy. I just don't know. We've not worked <laughs> together enough. Um, but but it's it's well, you know that will hurt you, and you know that you'll go, oh my god, and you know that that will can lead to inaction mm-hmm. because you go, hang on, but I've done that, and, and maybe the, how can I bring that? And um, that's a victory for the shameless. Yes, they've got no nothing that can stop them.
2: Yeah, but the problem is as well, there are plenty of people who agree with shameless people. There are plenty of people who read these awful things and go, yeah. And then well, but... we don't factor that in. We assume that everyone is trying to sort of pursue some sort of moral goal. Well, also that, that we all all have our, like,
3: base instinct we all have our dislikable impulses and so to have someone who I shameless don't, I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> that's just yeah, you're right but to have someone who will like absolutely shamelessly say you know there are moments when i xyz and you go like oh i mean that that feels cathartic to hear someone admit to something terrible even if you don't agree with the way they put those feelings into action it's just quite nice to hear someone admit to something sort of revolting I mean I'm guilty of it in the book I talk about I talk about all sorts of sort of quote-unquote taboo or unpleasant or unfeminine or unappealing
0: thoughts that I have and they
3: were just thoughts and as we all know thoughts and actions are two
0: different things but, but also it, we all do have them as we just said that's mm-hmm. the important thing is as you have just you know as you go not perfect and you know what I had a horrible thought and things come up in your head and you mm. know what that's so mean spirited and I'm I was mean. That's, that, that's the thing isn't it which is you can't be perfect mm. you can't you know even turns out apparently mother teresa there were some issues with her and she used to be the pin up of being perfect in the yeah. old days a lot of issues actually but but so i think that that's the bit isn't it but that that means it's not level it's always problematic yeah. because the other no one there you know a lot of people aren't thinking like that a lot of and, people are burning you know going back to a lot of people are the, those people who cheered as the witches were hanged or burned whichever it may have been in whichever town you were in or country there were people who were going yeah deserved it yeah yeah, yeah. she did to my chickens (laughs) my doors my barn (laughs) door and to make like
3: probably the most glib obvious point that I know gets brought up on your podcast a lot but without reading as an act of exercising your empathetic muscles we're really screwed like I think people who don't put themselves into the don't imagine themselves into another body, another life, another set of experiences, and therefore build up the mechanism by which you can empathise with your community. All you get is the sort of blank, like, they think that I don't know why they're bad. I think this, I don't know why I'm good kind of mentality. And that's, you know, I have a I have a three-year-old and I want him to learn to read for all the sort of obvious reasons that he can then understand his tax bill and he can be taken seriously in the world and he can you know to tell someone why he loves or hates them but also I want him to even now he's building up a muscle that is as important as language or anything else which is imagining himself into other life experiences and at the moment they might be like Elmer or Zagazoo but that. I really wanted to talk to you about Zagazoo. 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 I like it
2: a lot. very funny.
3: The penultimate page of Zagazoo, I can't really talk about without getting quite emotional. When Zagazoo brings his new partner home to me, his parents, and they've turned into a couple of old pelicans. Oh my God. It's just so beautiful. But that's like, that is such a, that's such an amazing thing to say to a child, that you can imagine yourself as a dragon, and you can imagine your parents as two yakking old birds. And that, like, allows you to understand what the world might feel like for them and therefore be kinder and more un- understanding of them.
2: I mean, I have to... I spend most of my day saying, you you hit little baby <laughs> Leah, but imagine if little baby Leah hit you. You wouldn't oh. like that, would you? Mm-hmm. Imagine, mom, you hit mummy, but mummy would mm. never hit you, <laughs> would she? So let's think about that. And then my yeah. my daughter says... It's just my life. So um, let's have a look at some of your books now. These are books that you really love.
3: Yeah, I've got lots of books I love, but there's some recent ones where that creative act of empathy, I think particularly because I've just written a book about my life, which involved becoming a a period of my life, which involved becoming a mother. Mm. I was really keen to read books where that has looked different so I, um, this book, Adrift by Miranda Ward, Field Notes from Almost Motherhood, is just incredibly beautiful. Uh, and then similarly, you know, not bleak, but another, this is an insight into a life that I wouldn't have necessarily had, Terry White's Coming Undone, which is about her um, sort of decline into mental illness and her quite troubled childhood and how those two things interact and her kind of psychiatric kind of, um, not like, let's say break, she just has a break from reality and I think anyone who has undergone early parenting will be really drawn to narratives of people who have just completely left their conscious self because that's a lot of what it entails and I interviewed her in my book and she was just completely brilliant about absolutely determined she never wanted to have children and she argued the point so brilliantly and so passionately and I wrote the book and just as I was about to get it legaled she got in touch saying, actually I am pregnant. That's great. <laughs> great. Um
2: <laughs> what did she say about that?
3: Um, I think she just said like you never know, do you? And yeah, like you you know the know. thing that she said
2: in the book Well, you do know, but you might at different points. This is
3: what she said something in the book- else. This is what she You know the book- at it- that
2: point and it's, it's valid.
3: Yeah, she said it's not a binary. We like to imagine that everyone either wants children or don't want children and the truth is that you will go between those two states at different times in your life until you presumably have the menopause and then you aren't like then the opportunity is gone but you will never be entirely in one camp forever um how we met by Huma Qureshi, which is a lovely book about um how she as a muslim woman sort of navigated her panic years so she was Um, how how her sort of the parental pressure to get married interacted with her sort of um, uh, her life which looked a lot more like my life than it did her mother's life she was a journalist and she had studied in Paris and she you know she but she had whereas I had this sort of gnawing deadline and impulse about having children she had it about marriage because of obviously you know culturally that's something she'd been brought up to see as an inevitability in her life but how do you cope when it looks like she was I think in her 30s and which in her sort of little area of the Midlands muslim population was seen as quite old to not be married and would she manage it at all and then she falls in love with a like lovely man who is not muslim and he converts and that she also writes really brilliantly about parenting and that so they're are a load of like um and brown baby by nikesh shukla friend of the show you know yeah. i i
2: I I love those your book and his book in companion with each other I, I think, think it's so... really great and also I think like stylistically both managed to be incredibly personal funny but also really informative like so both really informative. well resear- but yours too it's so well researched oh, as well so you read it and it feels like good journalistic writing sort of almost like Trojan horse <laughs> or the other way around like I'm not sure but like I feel like you get you get both and, and also and like, we
3: we've talked about this in terms of comedy that it's still strangely rare and compulsive to hear a man talk about parenting as if it's his, as his main occupation. Yeah. So often parenting is the thing that you do as a sort of side note to your other occupation, be that career or like, uh, you know, politics or whatever. And it's really lovely to have a book where he talks about, you know, some of the scenes for me that were so magic are him walking around Bristol late at night with his baby mm. in a sling, eating crisps and watching people come out of a mosque or watching people he come out of He came to one of our gigs and- like that. Yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. yeah I was just saying that's like, I, I cannot tell you how sort of fundamentally pleasing it is to me to read an account of incredibly prosaic moments of parenting Mm. written about in a magical beautiful way which is a good way to introduce My Wild and Sleepless Nights by Clover Stroud which is a book where she she has five children with a big age gap between the older two and the younger three but she writes about her pregnancy and birth and early months if not year of her fifth child and I love I loved the descriptions of cooking pasta for five people whilst also trying to like deal with nappies and A-levels and your like, uh, you know, trains on the floor and like sticky substances unknown to quantum physics that happen to cereal when it's been left in a bowl all day. And, you know, I think that's that very stuff that was considered lame for too long is now considered fascinating to me. And I think I would have found it fascinating even before I had a kid.
0: Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book, Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. Um, and another, sort of add
3: to that, another piece of non-fiction, Salt on Your Tongue by Charlotte Runcie. Have you read this, Josie? I think you'd really like it. Women oh, in the Sea. No. She wrote that with her baby in a sling which I just think is lovely and it's all about the kind of mythology of the ocean and women's role in that and um and quite a lot of stuff on sea shanties before they became cool I was going to joke about how I had all these books you know I've I, I, I'm consuming all these books that I love that are sort of opening my eyes to different different experiences but if you would say to me what was the book that has brought me greatest joy over the last year it's <gasps>
2: how oh, Jill I have Philip a copy, Hunt. but I've only read half of it. And
3: what's the other one? What's his other novel? Girl in...
0: Girl in Winter. Girl in Winter, thank you, yeah. See, that's what I like is after all those books, you go, and finally, a misanthrop. Yeah, finally, <laughs> a
3: white male misanthrope who never had kids. That's the one that I've really... But I can't tell you how much I loved those... That I loved those two novels. And um, I've now written a novel or i'm like in the final stages of drafting a novel and um it's really i think i had always held up novels as this absolutely unassailable matterhorn of like the, the greatest creative output we have Like i think because i did an english degree and i grew up with a mum who read thousands of novels and i honestly it felt like being able to write a novel was something that a mere corporeal human like me would never achieve yeah. and I think reading occasionally you read a book that is brilliant but not beyond the scope of your imagination and you go aha I knew, it's like you know. that with a stand-up show when I see a good stand-up show and I'm like I know how they did this and I had it a bit with Girl Woman <laughs> Other Girl Woman Other is obviously a sensational book that I couldn't have read but in its form it is not beyond me to write a character, you know, a a book that is largely character portraits that interact with each other. And I thought, oh, like that, if we're describing people, if that's a novel now, I can describe people like that, you know, and I I love that book and I, uh, I value it for all of the kind of the cultural reasons that get written about a lot, but I also value it because of the form and format it took, which was quite, it's not, it's not a ripping experimental it's not a ripping yarn it's not an experimental piece of prose it's like a very beautiful tapestry of human
2: like of character portraits and that's a lovely thing mm. um, sorry i'm just ta- i love taking physical notes to like nice. things just saying so interesting i'm writing it down in my <laughs> um, my ideas book <laughs> to, to think about yeah um, what what other things do you have that you really love that you because I know you've got big piles
0: I've read oh, can I just can I can mm. we get because I, I just before we get I want to go back to your book because I, I want it to sell God. well and can I we want talk it to be in the top ten okay Let's sell well sell often how much did by the time you finish writing it and then going through the agony of, of editing it and all those those bits where you have to you know sacrifice certain things. In, how much do you think you would change your perspective and your understanding of yourself and what you had been through? And because I, I've, I've, that, that mm. intrigues me.
3: I think. I think the first, first thing that springs to mind is that I hadn't realized how writing it would return me to that psychological and emotional state. So when I was writing about it, this, the urge to have another baby becoming became incredibly strong and me and my partner started having all the arguments that we have in the book. And so I think that was that's really interesting. It's not that my perspective changed, but that I reignited the fire that had been slightly dampened in my body. Um, I think... One of the things that came out of it that I hadn't really realized before I looked at the statistics of the sort of fertility treatment and spoke to people who are undergoing fertility treatment is how angry I am that my generation was sold fertility treatment as a way to avoid confrontation with systems that were unjust. I thought that makes me so cross that we, rather than examining why a certain type of cisgendered heterosexual man would delay and delay and delay having children for as long as he could. We told their partners to freeze their eggs or the women around them to freeze their eggs rather than interrogating workplaces about why they offered such terrible maternity sort of packages. We told women to and people with wombs to freeze their eggs and, and then not- keep working. And why we, instead of looking at the heinous cost of childcare. we told people to freeze their eggs and then earn enough money in order to be able to afford being a parent in later life and it's when I say free, when I say freeze your eggs I mean that as the sort of sorry that's sloppy I mean we held out fertility treatment in the future as a way of sort of um displacing the need for action now and I find that that like that was a that wasn't a uh, that wasn't a fight that I was particularly engaged with before I wrote the book. And now I think what the bloody hell are we doing? It's sure. it's terrible
2: i'm sorry i'm so excited to respond because i i feel like it's to do with the housing crisis as well Mm -hmm. you know we said to people well you know you've got to try and buy a house before you can have a child but of course if you want to buy a house you'll be 50 by the time you can do it (laughs) and and similarly you know then they allow themselves to advance the argument of well if you don't have the money you shouldn't be having children well yeah that's ridiculous it's not that's putting the and also, the wrong way around. It all should of, be have your children, and society supports you. We support one another.
3: And also, all of what I said is also innately defined by the fact that fertility treatment is that there is a real, I don't want to say homophobia but there is such an injustice around that that if you are a person in the same sex relationship or if you're a single person your access to those services is really compromised and it's basically a, a lottery of your postcode lottery of where you're lived to what treatment you can get and also innate to my problem with this whole sort of narrative of it's all, all right because fertility treatment's here to save the day is that it's a privatized system for a lot of people and I dislike private healthcare, and I dislike the fact that we are profiting off something so innate and so sensitive and so painful for so many people I I get very cross now I mean it's been a year obviously or longer since I did it but to sit on a tube carriage and see an advert sort of playing on my absolute greatest vulnerabilities uh, to, and t- basically telling me that if I put if I would just invest enough money then I could get the kind of life I want to have and when you're talking about something is sort of so personal and so painful as the ability to have children I just think money should not be part of that and it's you know the there's a uh an interview I quote in my book with the chair of the human and fertility human and fertility embryology I hfea human fertilization and embryology authority who says like these she calls it a wild west and she says these these sort of companies and institutions absolutely profit off the anxieties of women in their particularly in towards their 40s who feel like they feel desperate because this is their one chance to get pregnant and so you can just you know things like two pound like scratches and you know all that kind of stuff you just think what is i don't know the science behind this but it seems you know i have friends who have gone through ivf privately and it is thousands and thousands of pounds and that i that makes me sad it just makes me sad like i could say it makes me angry and it makes me feel all these other things but fundamentally it makes me feel very sad for those people who are having to put money in between something that should be should be a different kind of decision and process Mm
2: -hmm.
3: same way i feel about american healthcare. like money just should be nowhere near that
2: well profit
3: um, should I tell you some other books I've brought now that I've really brought <laughs> no, the mood up
0: no just, um, we can't go any further <laughs> on this, now. this is just this better I'm be sorry. a book of fun cartoons from the 1960s by Giles well um... funnily enough
3: <laughs> funnily enough, it's Vegetable Growing Month by Month by oh. John Harrison oh. I, because I, I've left London now and I'm the luckiest woman alive I now um, guardian of like we don't use the word ownership of an allotment next to the river mm. and so I'm just reading about what I should be doing in March to make to make vegetables grow in my little bit of earth and it's so lovely I think after the last year and Brexit and everything where the sort of sheer details of survival suddenly feel a bit more um scary frail than they did in the last 10 years the idea that you can grow your food like it's almost like a kind of self-soothing mantra that i bring myself back to that you know all if all else fails you can grow some food well
0: not no, with our neighbor's cat something. shitting in our little vegetable we've got shit little, on the cat shit little back square. on where <laughs> i'm gonna find a thing we didn't it's touch so any funny. of that rhubarb
2: but let me say uh, again, it comes down to the suppression of anything which threatens capitalism, because yeah. I always remember being told by Adam Ramsey, the fantastic journalist and writer, that the Allotments Act when it was brought in it, uh, uh, in the early 20th century um to say everyone is entitled to a little allotment of land they had to water it down because they were like oh no uh, if everyone can grow their own food people will work less uh, You're people kidding. will have control and so like genuinely it is powerfully radical to try yeah. and grow your own food and encourage your neighbors to grow their own food and to swap between one another because it's like I had a divorce you from that need <laughs> here's a, a name droppy
3: anecdote he's already come up but I went to an allotment near my house and bumped into George Monbiot who has an allotment there and he is writing a book at the moment about how to feed the world wow. and he started writing it and then lockdown happened. And so all his visits to farms and things that he had planned couldn't happen. So he started writing it about his allotment and his collection of fruit trees and stuff. And we were both we were both sort of just standing well over two metres apart, looking out across these allotments. And I was thinking, actually, on a sort of deep, I don't want to use the word soul because it's sort of, you know, it has a lot of associations with people, but on that kind of deep level, there is something about an allotment that gives me hope for the world and humanity. And I think that's um, how can you, like if you have a little child or anyone, if you say, if if you just think about the fact that you can put a seed in the ground and you give it water and access to sunlight and it makes something that will keep you alive. It's like finding out that tadpoles turn into frogs and caterpillars turn into butterflies. It's like such an in- unbelievable act of magic that we just, we, because we don't think about it very often, we lose the magic of it, but it is totally magic to me that that happens. Magic.
0: <laughs> That's a much better place to end a <laughs> Good. I, on, on, on magic. Well, it's your book out now? It's just about to come out. It's out, out, out in the world.
3: Out and about. Brilliant. Out and proud. I've been
2: enjoying seeing people's responses to it, like people messaging you on Instagram and being like, yes! And uh, do you know what? Before we finish, I read an article in the Guardian, which sort of boiled my piss. Which was like, <sighs> some
0: fathers have decided the pandemic has made them start
2: being fathers. <laughs> and I was just like, Ugh.
0: Well, we Were we talking about that the other week? Next year, there'll be an enormous number of books written Ugh. by people whose uh, partner, uh, like you know, female partner, is a doctor, or it yeah, was in yeah. any of the uh, or a teacher and um always in go. the co-op yeah, yeah.
3: and I, probably... the, the bit from that article that i thought about that st- stays with me is the person who wrote that they missed their child getting potty trained like they yeah, one day it just happened <laughs> like they one day they came home and their child was weeing in a potty and i as someone who like had to follow around like an an acorn sized penis for like five days just waiting for it to i just thought this is imagine missing out on this
2: (laughs) (laughs) but also again it's uh, one of the things that really disappoints me about my generation is i had assumed a level of radicalism which has not materialized like seeing so many people get married change their name without any thought or any consideration not that people can't do that but at the same time to see no discussion you know to see so many people just being like i love the royal family disgusting and similarly this idea that there are men my age who just haven't participated. Mm. It's so wild to me, and partly because you know I know your setup and I know my setup, and we've always tried so hard to kind of split things. You know, but also
3: to go back to what we talking, like what we do and as women it's considered boring and domestic and prosaic and then when men do it it's considered radical and interesting and cool like yeah. that's come on but like also, wiping, a, wiping a bum is wiping a bum whoever's doing it and I find it interesting whoever whoever is doing it and I don't want it to be like a sort of firebrand act of male liberation they've wiped their child's ass
2: but do you know what like I just want it to be a firebrand act of everyone's liberation. And Ruben, I want someone else
3: to wipe my child, if not my own arse. I'm so bored of wiping bums. I'm quite happy for oh, someone God, else yeah. to come and... Oh, you had heard
0: it? that over this lockdown, you have let yourself go on the things wiping have your gone, own arse. Things ass. have gone bad, yeah. I've done an arse already. I'm not doing my own. Um, Robin, No, but I, I would say, I was just going to add to the, uh, in terms of the, the the man who was saying, I miss my son's potty training. Uh, you haven't really. Because as far as I know, generally with boys, what they do is they eventually get to the point where they appear to have learned and then they go, "Well, I know how to do that, but I won't bother." <laughs> and I and I genuinely, in terms of gender divides, and I know it's a very dangerous thing to say this, but from a lot of conversations I've had, it does seem that the uh, a lot of the girls, once they've learned to be, once they've been potty trained, that's it; they're going to mm-hmm. do it. A lot more boys. The hose. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll bring it back when necessary. <laughs> you know maybe when i'm dating it's also <laughs> sorry Joe. it's
3: so funny for me as someone who doesn't have a penis to sort of i had to ask around people with penises what was going on here cuz i was like how do you not wee on your leg every time you do a wee like how what what is going on here and change before that changing oh a gosh, nappy like yeah. do i where do i put it where do i put it in the nappy and i remember asking a health visitor about washing it cuz i was like i don't know like yeah. i don't really know i don't have much Dick maintenance under my belt. I don't really know what I'm doing here. I think I'm nailing it so far.
0: <laughs> well, we will, the, the Freudian therapist who is the first choice for your child, we will then yeah. know.
2: My son, Lucian, is doing very well
3: pleasure. on his
0: body.
2: Dick maintenance, private investigator. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, it's such a joy to talk to it's you. It's such a pleasure. Um, I can't wait until I
3: can see you both in the flesh. And when I say flesh, I mean as much flesh as I can possibly get my hands on. (laughs) Um, Yeah, have a lovely day. Thank you. It's an honor. I mean, it's weird. It's very weird because I've listened to this podcast for years now and I love it. It's very weird to
2: think that I'm going to be on it. And Robin, I hope you feel because I you've not been able to talk as much about you as a parent because we've been talking a lot. And like I know that you're like a very hands-on parent as well. Yeah. And
0: but also, the like you said, it's a story that gets told more often because it's meant to be an outlier story. So everyone, mm. you know what I mean. Yeah. So I think it's much more interesting to hear your take on it.
2: Oh, thanks.
0: To, to, to be honest, because I, I think it's an it. You you were so right in <laughs> saying that thing where, and I do think we will see a huge number of these books that will come out. And they won't be nearly as interesting as everyone thinks. And I think you'll be a
2: bit like um, some of us have been doing this for like fifteen years, mate. So we worried about. But yeah. even
0: but there is still the 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 realization of how ingrained it is, even in people who you know, like myself, whatever, who might imagine that we're all you know right on with the whole thing. You don't. Still, you can pick yourself up very easily and go, "Oh yeah, I consider that uh, a rather wonderful thing that I've done." Mm. You know, it's that it's that moment where, you know, you you forget to do the washing up because you were very busy reading an old copy of Susan Faludi's Backlash, you know, and, and you go, well, you better remember to do some of the other things as well.
2: <laughs> Johnny's got a really good song, which is called He's a Feminist Except for With His Wife. Like, <laughs> That's I'm nice. a feminist except for with my wife. <laughs> um, right. That's the end of the podcast. Now That's the end of the podcast. <laughs> um, listen
0: to more. Uh, thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters. Uh, if you are a Patreon supporter, you may be listening to the long version of this. It's up to up to you. It depends how busy your week is. But uh, thank you very much. And we've got loads of other things out. Come and listen to Uncanny Hour and uh, our Tips for Existence series with Tim Minchin and Nicole Stott and uh, Neil Gaiman and uh, Sarah Parkak and loads of others as well. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
1: Thank you very much for listening. Rate and review the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, patreon.com slash bookshambles, to subscribe to the Patreon for all the extra goodies and let everyone know about the show on social media and Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and Instagram and all the other ones uh, I'm too old to know about. Back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe, bye.
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.